Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks and streamers but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society, and this is the after show for Kings of Ohio, featuring my interview with Kat Lickle and John Hoberg. There was so much to talk about with these two. They've worked on so many interesting shows My Name is Earl, Better Off Ted, The Neighbors, Downward Dog, Gallivant. They've really worked on some of the most interesting, unconventional network comedies of the last couple of decades. And we talk about most of those shows and their upcoming Pixar film, Elemental. There's lots of great insider info about the Pixar process here. We also talk about Kat's very unusual road into TV writing and, of course, their goats. Cat uh, and John, you know, these are veterans who are always finding ways to push their craft in interesting new directions. And you just won't find anyone with a bad word to say about these two. And believe me, I have tried. Uh, so enjoy my interview with Cat Lickle and John Hoberg after a brief message. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because nobody says that. Can I just say thank you to you for such a thoughtful interview? Oh my God, yeah, I think you nailed it. Bullseye, interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. Listen to the Bullseye podcast only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Kat and John, um, there's some goat issues that uh, prevented us from doing this earlier, correct? (laughs) There were goat issues, yes. (laughs) Which is an excuse I don't get a lot. Yeah. Um, it was actually uh, Tom Brady, though. That's the crazy thing. It wasn't like the type of goat. <laughs> oh, OK. Um, what what's the story with your goats? Just out of curiosity, how many goats do you have? Where are where are the goats? We have, we have six. We have six goats up in Solvang. In Solvang. Oh, wow. Yeah. The whole thing started. So because we have a uh, I don't know, like three or four acre field. And the grass grows and after the rains, you know, it grows up like waist high, but it gets so dried out that when you mow it, if the blade hits a rock, it could start the whole, like a spark could set the whole thing on fire. And, you know, we weren't going to mow it because that's a big field, but there's a guy who mows those fields, but he'll only do it when there's like a misty morning. And then everyone in the valley calls for him. And so we were at the beginning of the pandemic, we were driving by the park and there was a herd of goats just eating all the grass down. And we're like, oh, cool. And so we called, I called just around, like, where, how do you rent goats? Right. And, and I found people who do it, but they won't rent for any field smaller than 20 acres because it's not worth their time. And then this one guy was like, just buy goats. They're like $60 each. <laughs> so we're like, where do you buy goats? And he's like, Craigslist. So, so we started, a little sketch. You had to go to the like like couple seeking goats section, which is exactly okay. it was a little nerve wracking. What we were <laughs> yeah, but we found this uh, this it was this woman Cassidy, and she and her husband did that L.A. thing I think people dream of, which is like let's just sell everything and start a farm somewhere. Like I feel like at a certain point in your life, people have that ambition. Sure. And they did it. They were like academics and like, uh, I don't know what they were, marine biologists? Is marine that biologists, yeah. And then they made some deal where I think, what was it, Cassidy 
because they don't like all the killing that came with the farming, but they like the sustain the sustainable farming. And so they, Cassidy made some deal with her husband that if she could sell the goats that she thought had the most personality to people instead of killing them, um, you know, as long as they made back whatever their investment was, she would do that. So we got six of the most interesting goats, according to Cassidy. And so, but you guys don't live, so you have a place in Solvang and but that's not where you are most of the time or is it like where do you spend your time how do you kind of split 60 40 probably 40 up there 60 down here it kind of depends on um where we're working or you know what's going on because like john is working or was until the, the pandemic i was working at paramount and i'm at home writing a book so i can be wherever i need to be john needs to be close to paramount so it's like so we, we tend to be down, you know, 60% here, 40% up there, probably. Yeah. And sometimes we'll be there for a couple of weeks or, you know, I don't know. It's There's no plan. We have no life right. plan. It's just happening. But you've got those, <laughs> but you've got those 14 children that it says you have on <laughs> yes, IMDb. Yes. Yeah, that was the... Uh, <laughs> That was just uh, screwing around and seeing what you could get away with. On, I think I, I put down that I majored in whistling and spelling. Also, <laughs> that, I think that's what we're in showbiz for. It's just to sort of push the boundaries of what yeah. you, do you of your IMDb bio. Well, speaking yeah. of that, um, we should say you, you guys, this is you guys have a Pixar movie coming out, um, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. incredible. I mean, coming out what in in June? Yeah, or, yeah, sixteenth. Yeah. Wow. This is so. All right. Let's. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but because that is just like so imminent, can we talk a little bit? It's called Elemental. Yes. And um, just tell me everything. Tell me how that came about and a little bit about that Pixar experience. It, it can't, you know, I think John and I have talked about this. I think Pixar is in some way like the CIA. You don't <laughs> call them, they call you. And so a couple of years ago, I guess it's been three and a half years ago, maybe it's, almost yeah. four. We were, 2019. <laughs> yes, we were at the Austin Film Festival. And we got a phone call out of the blue that somebody from Pixar would like to meet with us. And we're like, okay. You know, and we have, a, you know, our friend Dan Fogelman has worked for Pixar. And, you know, we thought, well, maybe Dan gave them our name or something. I don't know. So we sat and had a meeting with them. And um, it was this woman, Mary Coleman, who's now moved on to um, a different company, but she was awesome. And it was just this fun meeting about who we are, what we write. She did hear about us initially from Dan and then forgot about us. In 2012, for, she'd heard about yeah, us. Yeah, <laughs> she'd heard about us in 2012, forgot about us for the next six years, and then um, and then saw our names on a list at, that we were... Uh, uh, at the festival, uh, and so she came. And what were you at the festival with? We had like. sold a pitch for a feature, uh, a country music musical with this guy, uh, producer Matt Gross, and it it was one of those rare like things. It was the perfect experience of our life as far as pitching goes, where we went out with musicians and Matt Gross and hit all the studios. Uh, Got to think it was like what seven or eight studios in three days or something and just pitched it and like our first pitch uh was at paramount and we got an offer uh, we were told we we're getting an offer while we're waiting at the valet 
The next was at like Lucasfilm. And then the woman's like, where are you in the process? Right afterward. And Matt was like, I'm going to be honest with you. We just had, you're our second pitch and we already have one offer. She goes, well, you're at, you're getting another one. And we ended up getting like six studios. This never <laughs> happened to us bidding on this thing. And it became this bidding war. And that is so unusual with a feature pitch that they, uh, Matt had talked to someone at the Austin Film Festival and they were like, can you do uh, a panel about that? So we did. It was just such a random thing. We were even there. It's like, cause we got on the panel like that. Okay. You were the last people that this is ever going to happen to. Can you tell the rest of us what it was like? My boy was like, this is fucking crazy. Like it's like the nineties with this project. I don't know what's going on. And then before you ask, it's, you know, it's in turnaround and we'll never get out of Paramount because it costs so much. Yeah. And no one paid the money to take it away. Everybody, it's like everybody liked the script. It looked like everything was going great. And then there was like a house cleaning at Paramount. Yeah. So everybody we had worked with was fired. Well, in addition, yeah, there was and then it was the pandemic, and then they were just yeah. not doing, you know, anything. $15 million country musicals anymore but i guess in some way i mean so it brings you to this festival which reminds this pixar person of your existence and and so it kind of leads to all right i feel like that's how it all paid off it was like a circle that you know took us it's like you never know where the path is going to take you when you're in this business you know you just kind of got to follow it and uh you you have this meeting at pixar and and do do they have this idea or do you bring them? Okay. So what happens okay, so, next? Do you have right. this meeting? Well, we have the meeting and then they basically, uh, they're like, we're, we're big fans of, they read everything. Like they had a stack of almost everything we ever wrote, you know? And so that's when we sat down for coffee and we're like, oh, they're serious about this. We kind of thought it might be one of those sort of meet and greets that never goes anywhere. And then they told us like, look, um, if something feels appropriate for you guys, we'll let you know, but heads up, it could be years from now or it could be tomorrow we just don't know and so we kind of put it out of our heads and then we got a call um i think directly from mary i think she yeah, was manager is like just call them and she's like hey i think there's a project that's looking for a new writer there'd been a writer there um to who had done two versions uh and then you know she was uh was gone and uh they're like we want you to come up and meet this director um and this was only like three weeks later and so we're like okay great and then basically they sent a car in the morning you get you know you go to the airport you're at pixar by lunch we had lunch with the director for about an hour and a half pete Sohn, who we fell in love with instantly like adored, he's adored. really yeah he is brilliant and and sweet and just like you know those people you meet in showbiz you're like okay i really want to i want i hope this works out and we were home by like 4 30 or 5 that day and sort of in this like did that even happen? And we had to sign non-disclosure stuff. They didn't even tell us what the movie was about when we had the meeting. Um, we just, looking back, Pete was really interviewing us with the right questions, but we had no idea what the movie was about. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, they they go through, and we talked to Fogelman, and he's like, just know, they're, they're going to meet, they're going to meet a dozen people. They meet a dozen people, so also don't think that that's maybe a done deal. And then we ended up getting the job. Um, yeah. And so... And also, by the way, with Pixar, uh, uh, a sudden need for a new writer is not unusual for them. It's really unusual that one writer completes a movie. It's like they, they, I, we always, 
we always joke, and it's a little nicer than this, but we always joke that for them, writers are like toner cartridges. <laughs> and it's like, oh, the ink's getting a little light. Oh, if there's anything in here. All right, we'll find a new one. Yep, we've sucked all the ink out of this one. Let's go to the next one. But it, I mean, and they're very upfront about that. It's like, that's part of the, you know, yeah. it's a director driven place. And that's the one constant and the writers, you know. The way to to definitely not stick around at Pixar is to dig your heels in and say, no, I think this is the way it should be, which, you know, every time I've heard of people leaving, often there's something in that or, or it's just not a match. And and by the way, I think one of the reasons that we, we worked um, or we meshed well with Pixar is because, you know, we grew up in television writing where... It, you do version after version after version. You're getting notes. You're getting notes from your executive. You're getting notes from the studios. You're getting all of these things. And so you're, and you, and then you're getting notes on set. You know, there's things that you need to be able to change on the fly. So I think television writing, you become extremely flexible. And, um, and that really benefited us um with uh going into the Pixar process so we could constantly be flexible with them we never were like no this is the version this is the one we're now you know it's it's kind of like being this is going to sound like too lofty but like second in command on a show like you're chasing a showrunner's vision and in this case it's a director and then you also there is kind of a staff of writers called the story team and they're the storyboard artists but they also contribute to the story Mm. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic, unusual process there that, you know, it, it either works for you or it doesn't. And yeah. some people's brilliant writers have come and gone like that. And, you know, others have stayed. So, um, and, but once you guys were brought on, you kind of stuck it through to the, yeah, to the we end. We got to the we end. Did. We got lucky in that way. It, we just meshed with the team and it, and we totally bought into what, you know, Pete wanted to do with this movie. And then, they do this thing is they call it the iterative process. So you basically make the movie every three months, uh, <laughs> hand drawn, and then you have you know, temporary voice actors at the beginning who are you know like the security guard and someone in animation are like reading the lines, <laughs> and then they sweeten it and uh, you know and do sound effects and everything, and then you you show this movie to what's called the brain trust, and you know it, it, for us it was. It was a whole bunch of different directors, but Andrew Stanton was there, who's like a god in our minds, and Pete Doctor, who is also. <laughs> and you're getting direct feedback on this three-month movie that's all hand-drawn with the security guard or whoever's doing the voice. And it's just very honest feedback. Um, and you know, a lot of times you'll walk out of those and like, oof, boy, that didn't go over well, yeah. but we got a nugget that works. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of get the the smoldering remains, and then like, okay, what what worked, what didn't, throw everything else out, and let's build it again. And so what, what, was, you... what was fun, uh, just briefly, the the guy who did the 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 male lead voice, a guy named Wade. We never met him in person. We only ever saw him on the screen. And he was really good, by the way. He was really <laughs> good at it. But he's always this big on the screen, and we would his name's Jake, and we would always have this fun back and forth. And he he's. You know, I don't remember exactly what it is that he does at Pixar. He's not an animator, but he's in the technology part of it somehow. In any case, we just went when we went up there for the rap party. We all of a sudden heard this familiar voice. that We're like, that's original Wade. And then we turned around (laughs) and Jake walked towards us. And I swear to God, he was almost like seven feet tall. And we're like, 
holy crap, you looked a lot smaller on screen. He's like, I know. And it's just like it enfolded both of us in this giant bear hug. But it was like, like I freak people out all the time with that. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think you'll carry with you from that process into your next thing that you guys write? You know, I know. I know what I think. Uh, I, I know what I think. You say yours <laughs> and I'll say mine. I th- uh, The... I used to loathe rewrites, like notes, right? And you would get notes and you're like, ugh, and a lot of times. And then you're like, oh, God, I have to rewrite this thing. And holding on, whether you realize it or not, you're you're being precious about a joke or a scene or something. And the amount of writing we had, rewriting we had to do, I think I looked up at the file cat the other day and sequences the number of sequences, uh, which is multiple scenes saved in the file of all the writing we did on this movie. We did eight versions, by the way. Um, I think there were like 870 saved <laughs> file sequences. I mean, it's kind of a different movie every time, but we we're in a constant state of rewriting. And we kind of figured out this trick that we're going to continue with, I think. And that's that it's like they when they try to communicate the artist, they'll be like, um, and then they'll quickly sketch something and show you it. Right. What we realize is our power is after multi-cams and all this, you've learned to write fast and at least at a good level, not your best. <laughs> that takes a little more time. But we could get ideas across to try them out and be like, you know what? Give us 20 minutes and we'd write a scene and come back. We're like, if you like it, we can make it really good. Um, but this is what we're thinking. And that's changed how we're writing now yeah. because that's how we approach it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's taught us both or me i i i tend to be or tended to be a much more precious writer like no this sentence can't get any better i'd say what are you crazy <laughs> and it's just like and and that has really changed it's like the the knowledge that as that you have as a writer as a creative person there's always another one there's always another one you don't have to hold on you'll find that next thing you just need to believe that you will you know when you make it the it's like when Pete would sometimes he'd say well we're gonna ax that scene and we're gonna need to do that you'd just be like ah and you'd have to be you'd have to sit and remember there's another one there's always another one that's the magic about what we do as writers it's like you know you're always you can always pull something else out of the air yeah if you can keep that if you can carry that with you and keep that like that's the the greatest gift right because you know and i always wonder how much the preciousness is laziness you know it's just like i just i'm hanging on to this because i just don't feel like writing another thing it doesn't mean this is great it's just like i just don't want to but i guess you can have that you know and you fall into it sometimes you have the attitude of you know what let me just make it better i'll take another swing this is cool like we also tend to fall in love with language sometimes like no that was a perfectly crafted sentence listen right. it just flowed like poetry it's like let it flow on out you'll find another one yeah i think it's also with uh it, it kind of unlocked this thing for me that i feel like it, there's this problem where you write and you're almost picturing it going on screen as you're writing it instead of even though we all know the process in television it's like you're going to write that draft there's going to be punch up there's punch up on set there's changes in edit but still when we're writing we're putting all this like the world is looking over our shoulders as we write it it's on screen and this really just got rid of that thinking at all because you're like this is the best that we're all as a group going to be able to do in a three-month period to make this next screening as good as it can be it's not what's going to be in the final movie Mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways it reminded me and I think Kat you were we talked about this 
that it's like it, what you're writing isn't going directly to press or write yeah. on screen. So take the pressure off a little bit. So, yeah. All right. So that's the most recent, you know, let's go back um, to uh, how you guys started because you didn't start out writing together. Um, and am I right that Kat, did you start first? I did. And so which one of you is from Ohio and who's from, who's from Ohio, who's from Kansas? Ohio. Okay, John. Okay. All right. So I don't know. Let's start with you, Kat. So Kansas and where in Kansas? Uh, a little teeny tiny town called Colby, Kansas. It's six. It's uh, the only thing it's famous for is a John Denver song uh, where uh, there's the line born just south of Colby, Kansas in the in the song. It's the only <laughs> thing anybody ever knows Colby for. Okay. And then how, so how do you get into television writing from Colby, Kansas? Uh, I, I think from the time I was little, I, I loved writing. I would get in trouble at school for, um, uh, you know, not doing, not doing the English assignment I was supposed to do, but, you know, just writing stuff, you know, poems or, little short stories and stuff. And I remember during math class, uh, algebra class, which I, it's math is just like anything plus past two plus two. It's like, I, you know, I need fingers and toes and John to tell me what it is. And um, yeah. And uh, I was ignoring my math work that I was supposed to be doing. And instead I think I was writing a poem and my, algebra teacher came by and looked at it and went, she went, that's really nice. Um, but I need you to do the formulas from the board. You can do this later. So, and I failed math. I had to take it twice and I just barely, I think she, she took pity on me the second time, but that was, it's just like, don't know where it came from. I don't come from an enormously creative family. I come from a family of uh, farmers and on one side and painters as in house painting and construction on the other side. And so um, I, I don't know, I'm a little bit of an outlier. But you about to act originally. So. Oh, I did. That's too embarrassing. <laughs> I know you don't like talking about that. No, so. <laughs> no. I did. I went to college as a, um, and I dropped out of college as a theater major. And um, I uh, ended up moving to LA thinking it was going to be like, now I'm in, I'm, people are dying for somebody like me. <laughs> and they might have been dying for somebody like me, but who could act? <laughs> <laughs> Just that little detail. That was, that was the little problem. And there was a certain point where I recognized it. I had to realize it wasn't like every auditioner that was looking at me was stupid. I was like, maybe... <laughs> Maybe I'm maybe not being really. the best actress in Colby, Kansas, isn't quite <laughs> enough to make it in Hollywood. They'd so, never so, seen so. acting in Colby before. <laughs> I was the lead in Shoemaker and the Elves, you know, in junior high, but that didn't, you know, translate. So I really I stopped acting and it was a real shakeup. I had no idea what I was going to do. It had been everything that I wanted. And this was around the time when the um, AIDS crisis was really at its height. And uh, my mom is a nurse. My stepfather is a doctor. My dad was a social worker. So I had sort of, I think, a part of that caregiving mentality. 
And um, I ended up getting looking for and getting a job at AIDS Project Los Angeles, which people were still really freaked out about this kind of thing. And um, I got a job in the legal department doing deathbed wills like you do. And um, so the lawyer and I would go off to, it's like, we would get a call from somebody and, and, it, you know, and you got to remember also, this is a time before gay marriage was legal. Um, families would be very upset about their, you know, gay children and not accepting, I mean, not everybody, but it was a lot more, it could get really ugly. And there were a lot of stories where partners who'd been together for 25, 30 years, you know, in committed relationships, and one of them would pass away, and the house would be in that person's name. And so then the family would come in, swoop in and say, it's mine, because people didn't think about, you know, right. when you're a 25 year old guy, you're not expecting to die real fast. So people didn't have wills. So long story short, I worked for a lawyer, and then he and I went to death beds. We did deathbed wills. Um, and so I ended up talking to a lot of people who were literally within days or hours of dying. And my job was to hold people's hands and it was men and women and hold their hands. And and because there was always going to be a question, was the will going to be contested? And I had to, I was going to be the one called in to testify. This person was cogent when they made the will. So my job was to hold that person's hand talk to him or her, and then ask them non sequitur questions. Like, have you thought what you're going to do about the dog? You know, who you're going to leave the dog to or what arrangements you're going to make, knowing full well that maybe that person didn't have a dog. And so if they said, oh, make sure Fifi goes to, you know, my partner, then you've got a problem because it's they're not cogent right. necessarily to make a will. So you'd ask a bunch of questions about their life, how old they were, who they were married to, what they're, you know, all these things. So that if I was called in ever to testify at a court of law, I could testify that this person was cogent. So and what it did, and this is getting back around. The I, right I got to say, at this point, I'm still I could not guess the next story beat of how <laughs> how we're getting to television this writing. Is, I'm fascinated. Keep going. This is why we were hired by Pixar. <laughs> no, so what what happened was I was holding the hand of a lot of people who were also telling me the stories of the thing that they wish they had done that they had never done in their lives. A lot of it. And um, and I went home and started thinking about what do I wish that I had done or tried or and, you know, and it was writing and it was it was really for me, it was all about writing that I wish that I, you know, I didn't want to face the end of my life without at least having given it a shot. And that's changed everything for me. Mm. And so did you start writing TV right away? Did you start writing like TV specs or was there another I, kind of writing that you tried first? I had a ridiculous, I quit my job or like they quit me. They convinced me to go off on um, kind of a compassionate leave. They're like, this happens to a lot of people. They get burned out. We can give you like three months of, you know, like compassionate leave. And while I was in the middle of that three months, a friend of mine who was an animation writer for Disney television, um, and he and I, you know, were good friends and had talked and he knew I had this vague interest in writing. And the second he heard I quit, he came to me and he said, I have a job. I'm going to be running like a three month long project for Disney 
television animation and um, I can hire one writer that I want. Uh, are you interested? And it was literally a couple of weeks after I I, I left APLA. And so it was it, it, it felt like a very, um, uh, a, I don't know, a meant to be moment. And that started off my started off my television writing career. And um, I worked in television animation. I worked my way from shows you've never heard of up until, you know, Rugrats and, um, you know, uh, DuckTales and, you know, Chippendales, Rescue Rangers, you know, like all of this other stuff until I eventually got to, um, you know, I got to a television show uh, starring Peter Scolari and it was called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids based on the television or based on the movie. And, um, you know, and so that was it. That was my beginning. And I believe John Hoberg was also a writer on that well, that was nepotism, though, because we yes. had not teamed up at that point. Oh, okay. All right. I was so just, now I, I, in my mind, I'm like, just, you know, trying to glean from the IMDb pages. I'm like, huh, do they meet on, the, do they meet on that show? All right. So, so now, Hoberg, you, so John, you, you're from where in Ohio? Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. And how do you come out to Hollywood? I, I went to Skidmore College in upstate New York and had no idea what I was going to do with my life and everyone so many people were from new york city that they all just kind of went to new york you know back to new york after graduation so i did that and then i ended up getting a job through a family friend at, as like an assistant at a book literary agency <clears throat> where i was like reading the slush pile you know and just kind of slaving away in, in book publishing still no idea what i thought maybe i'd be a book editor you know i had a decent eye for the slush pile i found a couple books that ended up you know getting published but um and one of the in the slush pile one day was this book by Rob Long uh, called Conversations with My Agent. And he had sold it, I think, in England um, first before in America. And uh, the agency that he went through, I think, had some kind of uh, reciprocal agreement with my the agency I was working at. And so my boss has no interest in television. She's like, read this thing and see what you think. And so. I picked it up like when I got on, like as I got on the subway and I read it straight through to the end. And I was like, holy crap, this is what I want. I want to do it. just sounded really, I'd never, I don't think it even crossed my mind you could write television for a living. I don't know what I thought happened. I guess if you really quiz me, I might eventually realize it was written by people. But uh, Rob was coming in uh, to meet because I called my, I told my boss the next day, it's like, yeah, we should, we absolutely should try to sell this. And so Rob was coming through New York. And so I got to meet him and and he was really cool. And I was, you know, I was like 21 or 22, like wearing sweater vests and trying to learn to smoke a pipe. So I would look old <laughs> enough so people would take me seriously in publishing. And Rob showed up in like tennis shoes and a t-shirt. And it's like, he was, I think he just finished running Cheers. And, and uh, he told me more about the business. I was like, this sounds incredible. And then coincidentally, about a month later, Cindy Shupak and Ellen Sandler. Do you know those writers? Mm -hmm. um, like Cindy wrote for uh, Sex in the City. Ellen, she and Ellen were a team and they wrote on Raymond. They were going around New York City um, publishing because they just sold a pilot. They had an overall deal at Universal or something. And they sold a pilot about a woman who starts a literary agency in her living room. And uh, and so they called him again. My boss had no interest, but she's like, if you want to meet with them, they just want information. And so, you know, I, I feel like I called him back and was like, I, I'm the lowliest person here. If you want to meet me, I'm happy to do it. 
And so I met with them and they were incredible. And they gave me more insight into what it was and basically told me like, just I met a guy and we were writing a script together and they basically offered, if you finish that script, send it to us and we'll be honest and tell you what we think. Um, and so, you know, I, I wrote the a couple, a couple specs with this guy and then we ended up uh, sending him out to Ellen. I think I quit, <laughs> I kind of do a cat too. I quit the job as soon as we finished those scripts and sent them to Ellen and and Cindy. And I was like, here we go. And then I basically, uh, the plan was I was going to move back home to Columbus and live in my parents' basement for the three weeks it would probably take for Hollywood to say, come out here because you're <laughs> famous now. <laughs> and then, it, you know, I didn't know it takes a long time for a busy person to read a script. And so I showed up in Columbus and I've never, I've never told them this part because it would probably make them feel so terrible. But it, it took them a couple months, and I'm in the basement, just like twiddling my thumbs, like, "What the hell's going to happen here?" <laughs> I quit my job, um, and then finally, I got a call from Ellen, and she's like, "Look, they're the scripts are funny." She's like, "The stories are not strong, but the good news is you can can't teach funny, but you can teach structure." And she said, "If you're ever out in LA, give us a call. You know, we'd love to to take you out to lunch or something." Um, and kind of gave some advice on, you know, what to change in the scripts. So I ended up uh, moving out to LA pretty much right away. And, and then this, this is the part cat hates is I show up in LA and Cindy and Ellen now have a, a budget for a development assistant. So I literally walk into LA, become an assistant to two <laughs> people who are going to have their own show. And I was in the, it was the final season of coach. And I was sitting in the, uh, like they cleared out a copy room. Um, right across the hall from Cindy and Ellen's office, but it was in the hallway where all the coach writers would just stand outside their office and talk script and they would include me. And it was like a graduate school. It was incredible. And from that, from learning all of that, um, this partner and I wrote our, you know, our first legit spec and then ended up getting a job on, uh, it was like a mid-season show with a guy named Barton Dean that had like two backup scripts and we got one of those backup scripts. So that was my first job ever. Um, so it, it was, it came really fast and Kat and I had started dating at that point. And I remember she tried not to show how pissed she was when this happened. <laughs> in the meantime, in the meantime, I was selling off bits of my furniture piece by piece to pay my rent. John actually <laughs> bought one of my lamps because it's like uh it, I had a lamp that used to, that had belonged to Lucille Ball. We still own it. It had belonged to Lucille Ball. And so that was my magic lamp. And, um, uh, and well, I was too proud to take money. So she, yeah. I think you needed 200 extra dollars or something. And yeah. you didn't just buy something in my apartment. So I bought the lamp. <laughs> and that's at a point where you're, you'd already been working right on these yeah, animated shows yeah. and Disney shows, but you're still like animation. It turns out television yeah. animation doesn't pay a lot of money and there's no residuals or anything like that. There's no WGA for animation writers. And so that was a, you know, as I was, like fighting over the, the, I bought the lamp back from John eventually it's still sitting in the living room. But, um, uh, that was my big lesson. It's like, I, I love animation, love it, love it. But it's like, I cannot make a living doing this. And so that's when I started trying to head towards, um, live action television, as we would say in the animation business. And, and then around all of that time is when I met John and we eventually, we met and said, we will never work together. We will never be. Yeah, it was like, oh, that's so cute. You guys are going to team up. We're like, we're never going to. No, no. And then we did. Yeah, then we did. 
because you still had a partner at the time that you meet john you were you had a writing partner I did. Yeah. Uh, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life, but he was a trust fund, very big trust fund kid who was going to inherit a lot of money. Uh, and so I think his drive was to stay alive until he was 33 versus, <laughs> which was a ways away versus like, let's really work on these scripts. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's tough. I, that was, that was one of the hardest, uh, like that was a breakup. It felt like a, you know, it was yeah. like a, a short marriage that broke up. But um, and um, he he called, he blamed me. He blamed me. All along, <laughs> I'll tell you what he called me. But it was a uh, it was a John Lennon reference, a Beatles which, reference, of which is so unfair because I yes. hate when people bring yes. it up because it's just not accurate. And yes. you know, yes. she's accurate. she's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. So, so when do you, so, okay? So when do you two? What's the first time you do start writing together? We, and how long had you been a couple when that when the creative partnership started? Well, also being a very lucky person, I met Kat within six months of moving to LA and we were already dating. <laughs> this is John. It's just waltzing, you know, have everything handed to you. This is ladder. easy, guys. What's the, <laughs> what the heck? Well, I remember we um we were actually struggling because we were writing separately. We were we were always working, but it was kids' TV. So Kat was doing Honey Rent the Kids, the TV show, like she was saying. I was working on some Nickelodeon sketch shows, like all that and the Amanda show. And we just couldn't, we, all we wanted to do was write network half hour. Like, and it was the heyday. There were so many jobs and we could not get a job breaking through and no one took handing the jobs out to people. People walk into Hollywood and they're like, here's a pen, here's some paper. You have a job, you know, meet me on the lot on Tuesday. Yeah. Roseanne had so many writers. They had to wear numbers on their shirts that we couldn't break in. And so, uh, at one point, I think we, because we would always show each other each other's scripts and we would give notes. And at one point, um, Cindy Shupak again uh, had a, a pilot called or a show called Madigan Men, and she um, flew us out to New York to just help, like to do punch up. And it was a kind of nerve wracking, like how are we going to be as a married team in a room? Like you don't know. You know, where you're going to disagree, and then suddenly you're like, "Well, you invited too many people to the wedding," and then it all helps for exclusive in front of people. And uh, we got in there, and it was actually great. Like it was, we supported, we we kind of played off of each other, and it was sort of that one plus one equals three kind of thing, which is why Cat's so bad at math, probably because that's a saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and it, and it was like, wow, we might want to do this. And then I think some of the writers there kind of encouraged, like, you know, a team, a married male, female team, if you can make it work, might be a real selling point. And so we, I forget exactly the timing of this, but we kind of went back and wrote a, a couple specs together. And then we were staffed that next season on a network show. So yeah. it really did something for us. And what yeah, was and that staffed show? by a, a, a guy that we still are good friends with, and and um, no, th this was hope and faith. That oh my gosh, th that was hope and faith. Yeah, yeah. that's oh that, that was the next one. Yeah, hope and faith that took us to New York. We yeah. moved to New York City. Moved to New York and yeah, worked on that with Kelly Ripa, the wonderful Kelly Ripa. Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalen. Listen, you like podcasts, right? Sure you do. Don't try and lie to me. You're listening to one right now, so why not try a different one? called R1, The Flophouse. Uh-huh, and on The Flophouse, we watch a movie and talk about it. And then sometimes we also do other stuff. It's all meant to be funny and fun, and we think you'll have a good time. And just to be clear, the name of the podcast is not Our One, The Flophouse. It's just called The Flophouse. <laughs> I do a lot of correcting Dan. The Flophouse, a lot of correcting Dan. And so that would have been, was that around the time when you were starting 
when you're thinking about the earliest version of Kings of Ohio, I know you talked about like that was before my name is Earl. Mm-hmm. So I think it was, it was maybe even, Oh yeah, it was because there was a, um, a character. <laughs> we, we did a hope and faith where it was something like where they dinged up, the, you know, the Ted McGinley's prize car, like faith Ford, And, you know, it was, by the way, it was really confusing because it's hope and faith, but faith Ford played hope. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it would be endless confusion on set. We're pitching in the room. People would be like, "Faith, hope," you know. But anyway, but it was, uh, and it was, you know, it was a typical sitcom story. Like, we can't let the husband know we dinged up the car, so they go to an auto, like a repair place for a car a body shop, and they run into two guys that they um, that they uh, knew from high school. And the only way these guys will do it is if they, because uh, they wouldn't go to the, the Hope and Faith wouldn't go to the prom with these guys when they were in high school. So they're like, oh, well, if we go out to, I think it was like Cheesecake Factory together, whatever it is, we'll we'll do this for free. And so they go on a date. But those two guys were Ronnie and Donnie. And Kat and I could not have had more authorship of the role of the kind of hillbilly kind of central Ohio slash Kansas <laughs> people because they were friends of ours. And we grew yeah. up. And I remember we were like, oh, my God, I just want to do a show like this uh, with these these main characters. Guys, so we yeah. started started writing that then. It was much darker then. but Right. You said you, you mentioned in the quick interview uh, uh, that it started with a, a sort of attempted suicide. Yeah. Um, so yeah it, was like guy, it, was... <laughs> it was a guy uh, in his car, uh, basically with a. a, a you know, the exhaust pipe going into the car um, slowly, you know, just ready to check out when his buddy, um, I don't remember if it was Ronnie or Donnie came, you know, like pumping in the car, more or less going, hey, so what's going on? What are you doing just sitting here? And I don't know, it just, yeah, it started with a suicide. They both passed out in the car and the car ran, uh, rolled down a hill and into the, a lake and it woke them both up and they survived. And that was the beginning of the pilot. <laughs> And that version, I mean, you never, it sounds like you didn't like finish that version of the pilot or did you actually write that whole thing? I think we got about what, halfway through. I mean, we had outlined the whole thing and we knew what it was. And I can't remember if we said this uh, in the sort of pre-interview, but my name is then it was, yeah. And then we read it and it was like, holy crap, that's better than what we're doing. And it's the same voice. And so we just kind of put it down. Um, We were going to, and it was called mullets and we were going to, Oh, we had uh, Kevin Plunkett, who was like uh, had a comedy at Paramount at the time. Yeah, uh, we were going to go out with it with him. Um, and I, I, it was just the pitch, also. So it was getting a little momentum, and then it was clear like this is a waste of time. And then all of our efforts were like, "How do we get on My Name Is Earl?" Like that just became all yeah. we cared about, uh, and forgot about it after that. Yeah. And you got onto My Name the first season. Yeah. yeah, we yeah. started off at the beginning and and uh, that started with it's like we were bugging our agents like crazy to get our script to to Greg Garcia, who created My Name is Earl. And um, and it was just impossible. It was just impossible. And, you know, trying to get that meeting. And I think it was the day of he was going to have to fly to New York was- for upfronts was it was the day before upfronts and we'd heard that that he was fully staffed um and there was there was and zero change yeah i don't know what our agent did but he somehow convinced greg because he was meeting everybody in town and he you know it was the hot show at that time and we'd actually turned down a job with the off chance that maybe we could get a meeting i mean we we were that passionate (laughs) about it we felt like it spoke to us so much 
And so I think that might be how our agent guys like Craig just meet these guys. They, they turned a job down. They're not in the level of their career where they should be turning stuff down. And uh, yeah, and then and so we got a call. At, like Amy Hartwood called us at like eight p.m. because she was at twentieth at the time. At eight p.m. like on a Friday night or something, and said, "Greg is going to meet with you. This is really exciting, but you got to meet him at his house tomorrow morning at eight a.m. or seven a.m. It was really early because he's about to get on a flight to go to Upfronts." And our agent said, you know what? He's met everybody in town um, uh, because he was on the call too. He's like, you should probably come in with some story ideas also. Hmm. And it was probably what, 7 p.m. We were already, we already poured a drink. Cat's friend was visiting (laughs) and uh, we'd had a martini. And then uh, yeah, Cat's friend was like, I'll take care of cooking food. Don't worry about it. You guys go come up with stories. And so we worked until about two in the morning or something coming up with different. And then got up at six in the morning and did an hour and a half drive to Greg's house and uh, sat and pitched. And did any of those stories that you pitched him get become episodes? Yeah. Yeah. There was, it was one of those things in the meeting uh, where what we decided is instead of just pitching a, here's an idea, what we, and we do this to this day is we just sort of talk about the show and it's like, it reminds me of this thing that happened to me. And and they were all based on things that happened to us. But one of them, there's a, an episode that's based on something that I did as a kid that was terrible. When I shot a, a girl with a BB uh, gun. And there's a whole episode about it that's true of what exactly happened where <laughs> I won't get into that. But it's um, but anyway, so that one became an episode. Um, I think there were two or three that that really just hit the nail on the head for Greg. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then we had to talk Dana into opening the budget to get room for us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Were there a bunch of other writers on that show who were from, you know, the Midwest, from the area? Yeah. Did he really try and he, he did a the show that a job? Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, if you think, Kat, it's like everybody had a small town. Like, do you know Vali Shonda Sagarin? Yeah. So he's he's from a small town in Pennsylvania. So uh, Hillary Winston is uh, she's from a small oh, town. It's like. There's a guy, J.B. Cook, who was, uh, you know, right out of the pages of My Name is Earl. It, it was a really great staff. Um, and that's, I mean, so that shows one of the first single camera comedies that, right? I mean, there hadn't been that many. And you were coming to Hope and Faith as a multicam. Yeah. So you had, so you'd done sort of animation and multicam and sketch. Was that the first show that you were doing, writing that single camera? Yeah. Yeah, it was our first single camera. Yeah, and it was, and we loved it. It's like, I think the, it's like it was, because on multicam, it's got, which we also love, but it's got a very specific rhythm that you've got to hit. You know, it's like, you can't go this long without having a joke. You know, it's just like, there's, there's just a bunch of, and they tend to be not always, but they just tend to be broader. Although, as I say, this girl was pretty broad in comedy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but there was always there would, but it it had it, it was a it was grounded in a core of of real people. Every every of the every one of the characters on My Name is Earl is really based on somebody that Greg Garcia knew, that Hillary Winston knew, that JB Cook or us or Daniel Sanchez Witzel. It's like they were all based on our own small town experiences and those, you know, those sometimes really quirky people and and small towns have such a specific culture so it's like we all had so much to to draw from on there i think what we all 
I mean, we talked about this in the room is that, and there were a bunch of other writers where I met, it was a yeah, big yeah. stuff, but um, that you, uh, we wrote this stuff kind of out of love for the people that we all grew up around versus making fun of. And that was always the switch. Like it's like, there was a, you know, a sort of a hillbilly wedding, but it was based on someone having gone to their best friend's wedding where there was a Twinkie cake and all this other stuff. And so it was never looking down on those people. Um, and I think that's, that was kind of what made it work. And so this Kings of Ohio, I know there's so many, there's so many shows you guys have worked on. That I'd love to talk about this, but talking about the pilot. So had this idea, you know, always stayed sort of percolating under the surface while you're doing other things. Cause I know, you know, it's, it's a, a long time that it's set aside before you come back to it. I think so. Can, can I take walks all the time? Like uh, it will take like three mile walks, you know, and we'll talk. And that's where we do most of our writing thinking in a lot of ways. And um, we'll talk about characters or uh, uh, like pilot pilots from the past or stuff, almost like they were friends. Sometimes you'll just catch yourself <laughs> talking about some characters. And I feel like that one just kind of, kind of always felt like it was uh, something that was never, never even got a chance to go out and be rejected. <laughs> yeah. Well, and those and the people in that, uh, the characters in that are so familiar and real to us because they 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 really are um uh like the character of um uh Ronnie. Is it Ronnie or Donnie? It's, it's Ronnie. Ronnie. The fast talking um, guy. Yeah. Yeah, the fast talking, the fat it's like Every small town has that guy. Every high school has that, you know, that guy who is, you know, he can, he's always like, well, I can get you, for, I can get you this for cheaper, you know, and you, you it's always ends up being a, a mess and it's, but it's real and it's a real mess. And they, they, the, uh, I think that was the thing. It's like, because we knew these people and we knew that they were not just caricatures they're real people with real reasons why they are who they are and like they are because of their upbringing, because of their place, because of, you know, the hard luck version of the, their, uh, their area, like small town, Ohio. I mean, Ohio now is just, you know, it's become a wasteland, no manufacturing, everything is gone. And so it's like, we based that so much on, on people in places that we knew and some of the real struggles that, that happened. I mean, with a comic twist to them, but I, uh, real struggles. I had a friend named Tommy who was like, like that running like, Hey man, I, I here's what we're going to do. Okay. Here's the plan. And it would always, <laughs> you would see him like, um, if you didn't hang out with him on the weekend, you'd see him on Monday and he'd have like a big, like what was <laughs> like someone hit him in the face with a rake pole or something <laughs> like, all right, what happened this weekend? And there was always something where it's like he got caught up in the barbed wire trying to climb over something, you know, that spiral barbed wire where he yeah. kind of got stuck there and the cops <laughs> showed up. And I guarantee when they did, it was like, what are you doing? It's like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, then in small town, Kansas, it's like they, there would be the kid who came to school one day missing a finger, you know, because it's like it got caught in the, the hay baler, you know, and popped off. You know, and maybe they put it back. I know one guy who had uh, his finger was sewn back on. It was this one. And his finger was sewn back on, but it was never quite right. So he was always like flipping you the bird. <laughs> constantly. And he, so he would try to keep that as Kansas. And you don't want to do that. It's not polite. So he would always try to keep that one kind of in his pocket. But he was right-handed, and it was right hand, and so it's like you know you got flipped the bird a lot by that guy. I love how yeah, even even that mo you know that 
detail from the script that seems like okay well that's just a you know that they're just pushing the comedy the guy chopping off his pinky you know that even that is from a real you know friend of yours or person you yeah. knew yeah was it what what year i forget what year was it that you sold this i can't remember i think it was like two, uh, 2016 maybe i mean i'm just wondering because i just remember you know i think we were both you know in deals at overall deals at, at disney yes. abc 2016 uh, when i always i've talked about this on the show where it seems like the, trump's election was seemed for the executives to make them aware that there were a bunch of states they had not ever thought about um, yeah, in the middle of the like, country. Oh, yeah, oh. She, right there. And there's people that watch TV in those states too. And like, we should really be like, you know, there's this weird push to like, we got to, you know, market to these red state people that just, yeah. um, and so I was just wondering if, if this was in that moment where they were kind of looking for yeah. material in this kind of world. Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> You know, I think it, it kind of was also the uh, the casualty of because we had sold with a, another writer, Jeremy Hall, an hour long, which we'd never done at that point. That was uh, based on something true that happened to him. But it was like, a you know, uh, it was a ABC Studios for ABC and we sold the pitch in the room and it was a put pilot and they were really excited about it. You've never heard of it because they didn't make it. Um, <laughs> But because of that, then we wanted to try to get a comedy going, and especially in that climate of like they're looking for red state stuff. And so I think that's when we talked to the studio and we're like, can we we just want to can we just here's what it is. Can we just write this thing and we'll just get it over to ABC? It feels like exactly what they're asking for. And they were it was one of our best development uh, experiences with like Amy and the guy Zach Olin. And mm -hmm. they were really behind it. They were really excited. Um, you know, they were plussing stuff with notes and, and it felt <laughs> like, OK, this is feeling like a good year between this put pilot that's put. <laughs> it's going to be on the air. I mean, yeah. we know. It's, in the, it's in the title. Put pilot. <laughs> And then uh, and then I think what partially happened is what we heard back is that it's, you know, it's like they're really excited about this hour long and they don't want us to have split uh, attention span. So that's kind of the end of it. Yeah. So wait, so did you write it like on did you spec it and then take it out or did you pitch it? Well, I mean, we pitched it to the studio, studio. We were a deal. And so that then we just spec'd it there. Then you spec'd it. So you sold yeah. it to. You sold this. You took the script to the network. Yeah, yeah. We took the script to the network, and then they also the studio after they heard that wouldn't take it out anywhere else. They're like, "That's the end of that," mm -hmm. um, because the network wants you to focus on the hour long, <laughs> as they did not, in deals. That's not going to make. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm remembering like I, I think like I got sent hillbilly elegy from like three different like <laughs> you know, people at, at that time. That that's yeah. what I remember. It was just yeah. like it was like every, everyone's like wants to make hillbilly elegy and you yeah. know, um, but so so the development process of this was just really with the studio. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what I really you know, and I just listened to the you know, to the read again, and what I really enjoy about it is the stuff with um with brad and darla is is played very much like a, a drama you know like brad as um it, it all feels very real like you know and it's partly you know garrick bernard who played brad like you know played it very uh real and understated and that stuff plays just like you just feel for a guy who's trying to get his wife back who's you know and then the comedy so much of it is really you know provided by ronnie and carl you know yeah. um but it never you know felt like oh we're, we're we're 
we're pushing this to just be a comedy. Um, you know, you allow the drama to to really sort of play as drama. And it and I was just wondering, it seems like a network comedy development process would push you away from from some of that and want be more worried like oh this is feeling a little too indie movie like can we like you know make the comedy a little bit bigger but that, it seems like was, you you didn't really run into any of that well i, I i'm sure they probably were pushing uh more and more and we'd been at abc studios i think seven or eight years at that yeah. point and so i think they're also just like <laughs> just let them do their thing hopefully they'll, they'll buy it <laughs> Um, but it, uh, yeah, you know, honestly, it's one of the things that we have run into off and on. And now that we're into features, it's the right voice. I think we might've been feature writers for a long time <laughs> who just really liked, you know, television, but we've always loved the indie feature feel, uh, and feel like you can do so much. And now it's really happening in streaming, but, um, yeah. I feel like that's where our, we, we were trying to hit, you know, and I think our argument to the studio was, well, it's like, look, we we're from these towns. We know you got to treat what they're treating as serious as serious. Otherwise, it looks like you're ridiculing them. Um, there needs to be a moment at the end where you know it makes you really feel something, which was I feel like we did on Earl, although that was a hilarious like joke machine. That right. show. But yeah, I don't know. It was uh, it was it was interesting hearing it because it was more sincere uh, in some of those moments that I think we even remembered. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it is interesting because it's like now when you look at streaming and what's on streaming and what's considered a comedy on streaming, that 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 um it's a broad genre now. It's it's much broader than it used to be, which I think is fantastic because it's like I think that um there's I think uh reality and comedy can go hand in hand. And I think um I think uh a most true emotion and comedy can go can go hand in hand and play really well against each other. And and it's like honestly, for comedies to be funny, for jokes to be funny, they have to be some level of reality and sincerity behind it. And um, which is what you need for drama. And so I think there's I don't know, I've always thought there's much more crossover um, there than than sometimes the narrow categories and streaming has changed a lot of that you know it's like John and I have been watching oh I keep calling I keep forgetting the name John I keep calling it the big blue oh the show. big door prize the big door prize really um and that it's like I would call that a comedy and I would also call it a dramedy you know and then we might call that you know it 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 and it it it's a, a space that's available now that when um that really wasn't as available around the time of my what age. you're trying to say is we were trailblazers in our face yes. <laughs> yes that's it exactly we were ahead of the curve honestly we've always just been wishing we could write like a richard linklater movie i think <laughs> inside. it's something that uh yeah the, the network comedy departments are, are not looking for that they're not at all they're not, you know what's yeah. a shame too is we have these skills we were talking to kevin plunkin not long ago and uh, we were telling him some life experience, and and uh, he was like, "Just that's a show. That's a broadcast multi-camera." He's like, "Just go sell that." He's like, "And don't add music to it. Don't add like some kind of like. Don't make it animated." He's like, "You guys always want to add that extra thing <laughs> instead of just make a straightforward multi-cam." And we sat down to try to do it, and it's like it doesn't interest us for some reason. And we know how to do it, but it's just like 
we want to do the weird puppet musical or <laughs> you know that kind of thing i don't know why uh, no i understand it. you know i get this close i'm just like you know how to do you know how to write multi-camera you know every now and then they're like they're looking for multi-cams why don't you just toss off a multi-cam it's just like it it doesn't interest me i can't do it like <laughs> i just so don't um god that's you know so yeah you guys sent me uh that uh henson the, the, oh, the, felt bags. the felt bags the felt bags which um i don't know if we'll ever be able to do we just say what that shows because it's really i'd love to do it it's such a challenging uh you know production but but <laughs> you know we know people what the felt bags was i'd be curious because johnny uh uh okay what's his name the he was in Avenue, Tart or John, yeah, Johnny Tartaglia uh, was attached to this thing, and he he he's the puppeteer who played like the main role in Avenue Q, and he's like an in-house, you know. It was it was such a fun collaboration, but the the whole idea was that there was like an uprising in like this small Eastern European country of like puppet stan or something and uh which was filled with puppets and then the you know uh, i think the russians came in and like put it down violently and all of these there were a bunch of refugee puppets that came to america um but then when they showed up on our shores people didn't know what to do with them and they also had this issue with the puppets and that when that the puppets would uh <laughs> it sounds so insane when, <laughs> when they express their emotions they do it in song but it's in musical numbers that human beings can't help but join in on so it's like if you're so on your way to work yeah you might get caught up in a big musical number on in like downtown and now you're late because of it and so yeah it's then that i guess the government put them in these camps until they could figure out what to do and then the supreme court ruled you can't keep the puppets in camp and so the show starts where the puppets have been uh allowed to join american society and so it's following one family uh who are the first puppet family to move into a blue collar street in pittsburgh and they're the, they're called the felt bags the felt bags and it was going to have the first puppet human pregnancy scare of uh, uh in, in recorded <laughs> history which henson was it's like god bless henson they were, into it. They, were they were very into it and um you know, Johnny Tartaglia was our, our, our puppeteer. And it's like when we were pitching it, um, you know, going around during the rounds of pitching, it's like we had our, we had one musical number that was completely written. Um, Alan Menken and Glenn Slater. Alan, uh, uh, Glenn is the lyricist. Alan Menken did the music for us. And they wrote this amazing song, like intro song. And so we would go in with Henson and the puppets. Like we would walk in the door and people would go, oh my, show. Puppets, oh my God. It's like somebody <laughs> came and kissed one of the puppets and went, I love you. And, you know, it was just, it was so fun and heartwarming, all of it. And if I do say so, the show was actually really funny, but also, you know, also heartwarming and, uh, you know, and dealing with real experiences in a very funny way of, uh, of immigration and it was a chance where all of us could talk about our immigration stories you know because you know 99.9 percent .9 of us um are immigrants here you know There's i think we'll we'll probably try to pull, go out with it again i think at some point the immigration thing is was right at the time was getting so ugly with like trump was putting kids in cages and all yeah. just it's you know it, it wasn't and that's what that's really what yeah now that that it, now that it's all been solved it might be a great time for you <laughs> guys true. to, to take yeah, that really, out. That yeah. problem we don't follow the news but i'm glad <laughs> to hear that i'll bet it's a hundred percent better now than it was during those days 
this. <laughs> I think it would be fun to try to do that. Um, I don't know how, but it would probably it would probably cost as much as <laughs> the, the whole presentation pilot cost. But. To to uh, to to do it for for dead pilots. Yeah. I mean, it it really is. It's it's so great. I mean, you know, just this puppet musical about the immigration crisis and like, uh, it's it's a great script. We just you know someday we'll you know th- there were just a few things we we've done musical episodes in the past, but it's just like okay, it's just music. You know, like you know, and some of those were like the songs were covers. People, you know, we did this. Yeah. That was basically Zoe's extraordinary playlist, but it was before that. It was the same kind of concept. So it was like, okay, we can get people who can sing existing songs. And but this was like the songs aren't written. Yeah. You need the puppets. Yeah. You need, you know, you can only get Alan Menken to write one. Yeah, song. if we can, we need yeah. Alan Menken to. You know, if he can score the whole thing, then <laughs> then you know. yeah, he he gets he got busy. Uh, yeah. yeah, but it, it, I think that's another example. We just we'd love to do the. I don't know the the odd thing. I mean, we we got so lucky at ABC where Paul Lee and uh, Sami Falvey started to think of us as like, oh, Cat and John are good with the weird stuff. So we kept getting put on the unusual, and Paul every year would pick up something really odd. God bless him. <laughs> but we got to work on the neighbors while we were at ABC. And I remember we were just put on as second in command because this Dan Fogelman guy hadn't run a show before and they were really concerned. They were worried. <laughs> and so if people don't remember the neighbors was about aliens. And I mean, people may not remember which, you know, what the neighbors was. So oh, yeah. it was yeah. aliens, an alien family who lived in the suburbs, like at right. one of those like built up subdivisions, you know, gated communities. Oh, it was a New Jersey and, family that moved into a subdivision that had been bought out right, by a bunch yeah. of aliens pretending to be humans. And this was Dan Fogelman's first show right first i think yeah. so he he might have done something back before cars like a pilot i think he did yeah, what it was called. yeah. um yeah and so it was great because you know he he was coming off of crazy stupid love and tangled and all this other stuff and so he was protected and he he's like i don't do outlines <laughs> and <laughs> and i remember we got a call uh from abc and they're like um, Dan just turned in a script. Like we need, we didn't even see an outline or a story area. And so we were on the phone and Dan was like, yeah, I'm sorry. I just don't do outlines. It's like, I already, I already have the script. What's the point? Should I go write an outline about that script? <laughs> like, well, moving forward, he's like, it's just not how I work. And it was unbelievable because he said, it was almost like he was talking about the weather changing that he had no control over. Cause he was like, guys, I'm sorry. I know it sucks. I just don't do them. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's because he runs such a good show and he is so decisive and the table reads are always hilariously funny um, that everyone just got comfortable with that, with that show, which we thought now we we're, we've got the touch of Dan when we took over Gallivant season two. And it uh, turns out Dan has a special <laughs> not do outlines. Cat and John need to do outlines. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you did those two shows with him and then you've been doing another show with dan recently right is that the have you- yeah i am i uh i came in to help him uh, like i'm an ep with him on uh this untitled uh dan fogelman project that we're not supposed to say what it's about but okay. sterling k brown is uh the lead it's really cool it's a drama um and it's got that fogelman magic dust uh of this is us kind of vibe but in a very different way so I, i'm actually really excited about it yeah, and you guys, and you've done a couple shows with Victor Fresco too, right? I mean, there's yeah. just like there's yeah. some people that you guys have worked with. Yeah, we did. Yeah, Victor is great. I think Victor is. It's like we. It's like it's so fun when you work with another creative person who you are just you just mesh with. It's like we meshed 
one way with um, with Greg Garcia kind of over our kind of shared backgrounds in a way, sort of a, a point of view of the world. And Victor is so incredibly talented and just has this slightly off kilter take on the world that is amazing that uh, somehow we also really connect with. So it's like, um, he's such a, he's such a fun guy to, he's such a fun guy to work with. He feels like someone who was really waiting for the streaming thing to happen. You know, the shows he was doing, yeah. you know, Better Off Ted just feels like, okay, that was just, you know, if, yeah. if, well, if he that did. had been made in a streaming universe, you know, people would have understood it better. It just was yeah. not a network comedy. He truly was a trail blazer. Like yeah. uh, Andy Richter controls the universe. If yeah. Is, is genius. genius. Brilliant. Yeah. That was the show we, we wanted to be on that show so bad. And, you know, I mean, we weren't. We got to work with Victor on his show after that. It was kind of short lived. Well, we worked together on Earl. So that's when we got yeah. to know each other. And then we did this other one. Uh, but anyway, so then when when Better Off Ted was there, it was like we felt like we got a chance to work on Andy Richter because there's just that Victor Fresco vibe um, and kind of did, you know, uh, that was so much fun. Um, is there anything? I mean, you've done so many uh, different sort of genres and things. Is there I mean, Kat, you said you're now writing a book. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just curious. Is there is there something you haven't gotten, you know, a genre, a, you know, a, a type of project you've used? We were talking to Marvel uh, <laughs> before this Dan thing and that that or the Star Wars world. Yeah. I think we'd be really into like it was, we were it was a little dancing around the edges of that until the Dan project came mm. out. But um, I think would have been really that would be something that'd be really fun that when when John is done with Dan, I think we would go do that. Um, yeah, I, I'm intending to get my book published and then we're going to turn that into a streaming series. So we have that in our back pocket. <laughs> but I, you know, I think we're we're kind of game. We, we I think we're hitting the well, you know, our in our golden years. Um, we're <laughs> more and more interested in like we're, we're doing a stage musical right now. Um, and we've got a producer for it and we're kind of, you know, it's like, we're, we're in the process of that, which means in eight years, it'll be on stage, <laughs> but I think we're trying to just, we're, we're, we're chasing our new experiences and we really like collaboration. It's one of the reasons, um, we loved working on a musical because you're collaborating with someone who's, who thinks differently, like with musicians, Working with these puppeteers was really exciting because they think differently and you've got to kind of figure out how to work together. And then working with the animators at Pixar was really cool. And I think we're just sort of wanting to just do new stuff. Um, just uh, We had an opportunity, like when we were leaving ABC, we were kind of look, checking out the landscape. Like, what do we want to do next? Um, we had a friend uh, who was one of the actors from Gallivant we saw in London and she drunkenly was just like, you need to get out, leave, leave AB. She was like, you need to do like new leave network television. Yeah. He's like, you need to do new stuff. Cause she would always, we'd always tell her stuff that we were passionate about that maybe wasn't appropriate for network television. And, uh, and I feel like that we really listened to that. And then we were looking around like what's out there and it was, it was all legit stuff, but it felt like a lot of the same um, versus We'd been so lucky with Paul Lee picking up a crazy thing every year <laughs> that we could be a part of that it didn't feel like that was something that we wanted to do anymore. So, but I think that's what we're chasing. Yeah. Well, um, I I was going to be excited to see what you guys come up with. I'm glad I finally uh, got you. You know, I loved hearing this. Um, 
I uh, I do think it's just, you know, it's it's obviously it's really funny. You know, Ronnie and Carl are just such great characters, but it's just, you know, mostly just such a sweet, you know, heartfelt show about these about real, real people. Um, and it would have been, you know, I think you, you know, in, in a pilot to get to get us to care about that relationship. So, you know, you instantly care about the guys. That's that's not so hard. You know, male friendship of that kind. You you know, those are lovable. That's a lovable comedy threesome. But yeah. just um, you know, with Brad and Darla, that you really just see. Okay, you know, this is a real relationship. They've got a kid. They've got a dog. They've you know, you want them to work it out. You see why it's going to be tough. Um, I I think a lot of what we're drawn to. I mean, not surprisingly, but it's like. Uh, romantic story or or just kind of what makes a relationship work and like where you see a relationship in that case you're seeing a relationship that really should work but you get the idea that like she's at the end of a rope because all he's doing is trying to protect these idiots but he can't just leave them to fend for themselves and so I, I think we're often drawn to that like what is that relationship because relationships are complicated you know and i think maybe we're working out our own shit characters on page. <laughs> well yeah. it is also incredible that you've managed to keep both the creative partnership and marriage going for this long 24 um, years yeah it's i mean you know no so few writing teams last that that long you know it's it's yeah. super rare well, now I we're think in this is a good time to announce our big news. <laughs> <laughs> this is when Kat divorces me right yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't told John yet, but you know. but I appreciate you keeping it just to you know up our boost our ratings. Yeah, that yeah. Um, that right, you, oh saved it. you saved people it for the very end, for the people that listen to the very end. Um, <laughs> well, I just hope that that never happens. Um, and uh, and good luck with the goats and the fourteen children um, and the movie. Uh, yeah. Everyone, go go see Elemental. Um, it's coming Good. soon. Um, thanks so much, you guys. Great. Oh, thank you. Right. Fun to talk to you. Me too. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I really did. Uh, I love getting to know these these two uh, a bit better. Thank you to Cat and John. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-producer Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Findling. It is edited and mixed by Jordan Katz. Uh, Leave us a review, tell your friends, follow us on social media, do all those things. And until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening, and I will see you on the picket lines. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.